KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the landslide victory of the progressive candidate in Wisconsin's Supreme Court race, Janet Protasewicz, was 10 times bigger than Biden's in 2020. It shows how abortion wins elections. John Nichols will explain. Plus, will Trump's indictment on 34 felonies change anything in the 2024 election? Or has everybody already decided what they think about Donald Trump? Chris Lehman will report. But first, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, there are a lot of things happening in America that are not about Donald Trump and his 34 felonies. Millions are about to lose their Medicaid coverage. Public investments are being rolled out. Others are being ruled out. The Fed may yet plunge the nation into recession. Workers are being exploited. Workers are organizing. And there was an election in Chicago. Where should we start? Well, Chicago is always a good place to start. And there, the uh, progressive uh, Democrat, Brandon Johnson, won a narrow but interesting victory over Paul Vallis. Uh, The New York Times posited this as the Chicago Teachers Union, which is one of the most progressive in the country against the Chicago Federation of Police, which is one of the most reactionary, Trumpian, white nationalist, even though racially integrated unions in the country uh, as well. So it, 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 it was an interesting contest. I'd never heard of Brandon Johnson before a couple of weeks ago. He sort of came out of nowhere, as far as I know. Well, in the first round of the election, uh, he placed a distant second to Paul Vallis. And when he started running, he had uh, uh, the support of, according to the polls, 3% of the electorate. He was largely unknown, but he was a progressive Democrat, heavily backed by one of the the, the, the two really major uh, municipal unions, the teachers union, which is a real force in Chicago. And he had the good fortune, somewhat like Karen Bass in L.A., to run against a Democrat who really struck people as a Republican, just as Karen Bass ran against Rick Caruso uh, in Los Angeles, who was a lifelong Republican who had recently converted by, you know, by label uh, to being a Democrat. So uh, Johnson ran against Paul Vallis, who, while nominally a Democrat, had aligned himself Uh, with the charter school movement every time he was a school superintendent, which he had been in Chicago, Philadelphia, and a number of other places, and who uh, made getting more police out there his main issue. Now, not to, you know, say that this wasn't the main issue, actually, according to the polls, for everyone in Chicago. Uh, Crime is high in Chicago, uh, and a lot of people are frightened, but that doesn't mean they want to give a blank check to a guy who, uh, you know, whose main foot soldiers are the Chicago police, a rather notorious police force, and justly so, you know, and uh, they they opted for uh, a Democrat who had originally said a, you know, a politically damaging sentence about defunding the police, but who rolled that back to say reform the police and do other social services, which I think was closer to what most Chicagoans believed. And what do we know about the sources of support in Chicago for the progressive candidate? 
Well, the Chicago Tribune isn't, frankly, much of a paper anymore, but they did run, God bless them, a map of Chicago showing how each of Chicago's 50 wards voted, and that fascinated me. It fascinated me because while there was only a 3% margin, 51 and a half to 48 and a half citywide between Johnson and Vallis, if you looked at the individual wards, it was closer to 70-30, no matter you know who was ahead and which ward it was. Hmm. Johnson swept the uh, uh, heavily black wards. He himself is African-American. Uh, Vallis swept uh, where there was a remaining white working class vote in Chicago, and also portions of downtown and the loop, which are quite upper income white. But Johnson won really the North Shore of Chicago, which is, uh, you know, more uh, historically uh, liberal, the uh, Jan Schakowsky Congressional District. What really fascinated me was the nine districts that in the primary had given a plurality of their vote to the Latino candidate, Chewy Garcia, the Latino member of Congress. Johnson won five of those, Vallis won four of those. And that huh. reflects, that reflects, I think, a, a very high awareness of the threat of crime in those districts on the one hand, and on the other hand, still a resistance to voting for a guy who sort of seemed, you know, and more than sort of like a Republican. And so I think the ambivalence in the Latino community is something Democrats need to be conscious of. But within Chicago, they were clearly able to elect uh, someone who was clearly a, a progressive Democrat there. You know, if you position the Chicago mayor election on a continuum between New York and Los Angeles. You know, Los Angeles doesn't have the level of crime wave that Chicago has. Bass won over Caruso by an 11-point margin. New York, the left divided its vote and under ranked choice voting a uh, Democrat who is, you know, advertised himself as more law and order. Eric Adams won narrowly. It's yet to be seen what uh, what he will do and what New York will make of that. So that's very good news from Chicago. Of course, there's going to be a huge battle in the coming months as the police take their uh, revenge on uh, on everybody who didn't vote uh, for their candidate. Indeed. Well, the Chicago police, in the tradition of a number of police forces around the country, see themselves as uh, an occupying army. And, you know, in a sense... You know what the, the Latino vote tells us is we don't like the occupying army and we don't like it if they don't if, if they're not around at all. <laughs> right. Uh, that's the conundrum that police forces like that pose uh, in, uh, in in big cities where they, they view much of the city as enemy terrain. So I also want to talk about millions are about to lose their Medicaid coverage during the pandemic. The number of people on Medicaid increased nationwide by almost 30%, 92 million people are now on Medicaid. Uh, the percentage of uninsured Americans dropped over the same period, very rare occurrence during an economic uh, downturn. Why did the number of people on Medicaid become so huge? Well, because of the pandemic, the uh, dollar threshold for qualifying for Medicaid was raised. There was a deadly disease that was going around, and for a year there were there was no vaccines, uh, and so the, the the idea of millions of people who could conceivably be 
insured and eventually get a, mac- a vaccine and 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 get treatment you could reduce that number by you know just raising the dollar threshold of qualifying for medicaid was you know common sense not that our government is uh, necessarily beholden to common sense <laughs> but it was in that instance the problem is that there was a uh, you know the, the, this only existed as long as there was this healthcare emergency and the healthcare emergency is uh, the, the government's declaration of a healthcare emergency is about to go away. Congress has ended the continuous coverage requirement uh, where your state requires that you prove you're still poor, that you didn't become rich in the last year or two. And uh, California is not going to start doing this until July 1st, but a lot of other states are doing it as of uh, April 1st. So the risk is that people who have been on Medicaid and just got used to the idea that it keeps going are going to get letters uh, asking them if they're still poor, and they may not open those letters, they may not understand those letters. The Kaiser Family Foundation estimated that maybe 5 million or as many as 14 million people will probably fall off the Medicaid rolls, many because they don't quite understand the eligibility redetermination process. And even if they do understand the eligibility redetermination process, they they may not fall under, uh, you know, Medicaid's now scaled back criteria. It's not simply a question of what the hell does this letter mean? It's a question that even if, the you know, you may get what the letter means, and it means you're, you're off Medicaid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, there's a larger issue here life and death in America. The United States has a problem Paul Krugman wrote about earlier this week called premature death. Life expectancy in the United States is significantly lower than all other developed countries. For example, Americans die on the average four years younger than Italians. The second fact about life and death in America, also related to Medicaid, is that life expectancy is hugely unequal Major coastal cities are a lot more like uh, Europe and other advanced countries, but the South and the Eastern heartland are far behind. And the third interesting fact about life and death in America is this is a fairly recent change. As recently as 1990, Ohio had a higher life expectancy than New York. But since then, New York's has risen rapidly and is pretty much the same as European countries. And Ohio's has hardly risen at all. And people in Ohio are now likely to live four years less than people in New York. Why is that? Well, first of all, I I would encourage people to read not only the Paul Krugman column that you referenced, but the Michael Hilsick column uh, that's up online uh, as we speak. At the LA uh, Times. The LA Times website, which has a map where life ex- expectancy in the United States exceeds the national norm and where it's lower than the national norm. And very, you know, it, it is a very easy map to interpret. Where it's lower is the South and Appalachia and parts of the post industrial Midwest. And in a sense, what these figures confirm is the uh, a uh, Deaton case uh, landmark study uh, that showed the rise of what they termed deaths of despair in the United States, in particular, 
What was new was uh, the shortened lifespans of working class whites who had been uh, once part of the bustling economy of the industrial sector of the Midwest, uh, like Ohio. Then uh, the factories went elsewhere. Wall Street demanded American corporations to get cheaper labor abroad. And you created a, a landscape that is devoid of, uh, of, of remunerative employment. And there's uh, one other thing about that landscape. Yeah. Many of those states refuse to expand Medicaid. Yes. Well, right now, those states are centered in the South. Right now, it's down to 10. North Carolina finally overcame it. Every time that's put up to the voters, even when there's a Republican legislature, the voters have said, screw the legislature, we're expanding Medicaid. Uh, but there still are states in the South, uh, the most notable being Florida, where uh, Medicaid has not been expanded. And the number of people on Medicaid, even before uh, what we just talked about uh, happens, the revocation of the expansion of Medicaid, th these states, you know, were performing well below that uh, in general, uh, just refusing to expand it after the uh, Affordable Care Act passed in 2009 and gave them that option with the feds picking up the added expense. And there's one other factor, the difference in that map uh, between red and blue states in the terms of the COVID death rate. COVID uh, death rates are higher in red states. Would you like to speculate about why that might be? Well, of course, the red states <laughs> said that uh, wearing masks and getting vaccines were uh, woke, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and that uh, means bad, I believe. <laughs> yes, it means bad. And um, they were so unwoke that uh, uh, the mortality rates, you know, became higher than those in the blue states. And uh, all this is still being played out in the current political culture war that Republicans are, are waging. Uh, Ron DeSantis, you will remember, claims that although he grew up around Tampa, culturally he is a product of, of uh, the Rust Belt of Western Pennsylvania and Northeast Ohio. This is his bona fides as a white working class person. Of course, he's also claiming to be from the area where people die four years sooner. Yes, absolutely. And uh, he doesn't talk about also being a graduate of Harvard Law. <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to blow his own covers. That's kind of the reductio ad absurdum of the fact that cultural affinity is really the only thing Republicans uh, run on. They've, they've yeah. abandoned arguing about the economy. And, I, you know, I mean, they, they took the, the Republican perennial of reducing uh, Medicare and Social Security off the table because... They understand that would hurt their own supporters. Uh, but I wonder about Medicaid as well. Medicaid originally Republicans for decades railed at because their assumption was, well, this is a program for the non-white poor. But because of the economic trends we have been discussing here, it's now also the program for the white poor. And uh, the white poor are in many ways the Republican base. So I would, uh, you know, I think uh, the Republicans uh, are, you know, when they consult their district uh, staffs and uh, their pollsters, I think they're going, you know, they, they, they're finding that Medicaid isn't a very popular program to slash either. So what do they talk about? Well, they talk about, you know, uh, the, the, the Marxist uh, critical race theory in schools. 
gun control and so on and so on. And now the transgender issue, whatever makes, you know, sort of cultural traditionalists, many of whom are also traditional racists, whatever makes them insecure, that's what they talk about. So there's no surprise in DeSantis saying, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm an Appalachian like you, because uh, he doesn't want to talk about the economy. Well, there is one respect in which Republicans do talk about the economy. They say the government spends too much money. We should cut government spending. Uh, there's a recent uh, AP poll that shows that 60% of Americans agree with the statement, the federal government spends too much money. But the same poll also asked them whether they wanted to cut spending or increase spending on specific programs. And they found 65% want to spend more on education. 63% want more on health care. 62% want more on Social Security. 7% want less. 58% want more on Medicare. 10% want less. Shall I continue here? Yeah, well, this, this, is, this, is, uh, uh, this has been the case since forever. This is the old uh, adage that uh, Americans are ideologically conservative and operationally liberal. Uh, Republicans have banked on the first, but, you know, that leaves nothing besides abstract ideology on which they can uh, bond with the public on economics. On any, anything remotely particular, they don't even want to get into those debates. <laughs> One last thing, we always have to have a report on um, the class struggle in America. Uh, on last week's show, Peter Dreyer and Kelly Candale reported on the first ever union for minor league baseball players. This week, uh, the league announced what's in their new contract. Salaries will more than double at all levels from, you know, single A to triple A in the minors. The players will be paid for training in the offseason. A couple of years ago, a union of minor league baseball players seemed impossible. Uh, but now this agreement was ratified by 99% of the players. It's a five-year deal. Uh, they're also going to get upgrades in housing, transportation, and meals with a committee appointed to oversee food quality. Join a union and double your salary. Things are changing huh. in America. They, they are. <laughs> and, you know, my analysis in recent years is that employers will destroy any union or any unionization attempt where the workers can be replaced. But you can't really replace baseball players by anyone coming in off the street. You can't replace uh, teaching assistants at universities. Uh, you can't replace uh, teachers, really. And, and in fact, we've got a major shortage. You can't replace uh, people working in museums who are unionizing and so on and so on. Uh, so we're getting, you know, in a macro sense, a kind of almost class transformation of who's in a union. If your job is secure enough that you can't be canned, and that usually suggests some level of particular proficiency at something, you, you might be able to form a union. And certainly pro baseball players fit in that category. If you're still on an assembly line or, or working in fast food, you may be great at it, but they'll they'll fire you in an instant. And that's the challenge before the workers at Starbucks and Amazon and so on. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. 
We want to take a minute here to talk about the KPFK Fund Drive, which has just begun. Yes, we are asking listeners to support the station again, but that's because we have bills to pay again. KPFK, like so many other places, has had a rough year during the COVID epidemic. The station has had to lay off some wonderful people, and now we need to support the people who are keeping the station on the air. That means paying their salaries and the other costs of running a radio station. You know you can turn to KPFK for news and perspectives you can't get in the mainstream media. So please call us now, 818-985-5735, and pledge whatever you can, $25, $50, 800, 985-5735. Thank you. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This week, we have great news from Wisconsin. The progressive candidate for the state Supreme Court, who campaigned as a supporter of abortion rights, Janet Protasiewicz, won on Tuesday in a huge landslide. For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent and co-author with Bernie Sanders of the new book, It's Okay to Be Angry with Capitalism. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back on a really good day. What a pleasure to be talking about good news. This was a 10-point victory in Wisconsin for the candidate supported by Democrats, a 200,000-vote margin. How does that compare with, say, Joe Biden in 2020? <laughs> well, that's a very good question, John. Joe Biden won Wisconsin in 2020 by around 20,000 votes. So here you have a victory for a very progressive candidate by about 10 times that much. So it's, <laughs> it's a big victory, John. And the way that you measure victories in Wisconsin is, of course, you know, you look at the, the vote total and the percentages, but you also look at the map because Wisconsin is a deeply, deeply divided state, the great battleground state of the nation. And so when you look at that map, you look and say, OK, a Democrat or a progressive, this is technically a nonpartisan race, absurdly as that may sound. Um, and so a progressive will win big in Madison, will win Milwaukee. And we'll win um, a, a couple other counties. That that's those are pretty assured in, in any race where you do okay. But then you start to look at the rural counties in western Wisconsin along the Mississippi, um, some of the you know northeastern counties. If you win there, um, that shows that you you've really kind of cracked things and kind of gotten to to a new space. And Janet Protosewitz, the progressive candidate for judge. You look at that map; it's it's about as good a map as I've seen for a progressive in many years. So this means there will now be a pro-democracy majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Remind us what this new court is likely to do. Well, yeah, to do that, you have to talk about what the last court did, yes. what the outgoing court did. And the way to understand it is that in, way back in 2010, when Scott Walker was elected governor of Wisconsin, he moved very, very quickly to enact a militant anti-labor uh, agenda, which was highly publicized. He also took a real uh, shot at voting rights, 
at many of the democratic pieces of the democratic infrastructure of Wisconsin in focusing in particular on heavy duty gerrymandering, some of the most radical gerrymandering in the country, uh, and then a host of other rulings that, that people didn't like very much. And all of these things were sustained by the court. Uh, again and again and again, this conservative court, a 4-3 conservative majority, backed up Walker. Now, with a new 4-3 liberal majority, this court has the opportunity to revisit many of those cases. And we already know that, that challenges will go up to this court uh, on issues like gerrymandering. It's all but certain that, that that will be raised. And this court has the power to reopen that, that redistricting question and potentially redraw maps um, that could make Wisconsin dramatically more competitive politically. In addition, Wisconsin has an 1849 abortion law uh, that is still on the books. That's being challenged in the courts. Uh, the previous court had a 4-3 anti-choice majority. This court will have a 4-3 presumably pro-choice majority. So right there, a big deal. And the last thing I'll put in the mix is that you know Scott Walker's legacy was that of his anti-labor initiatives. Many of those anti-labor initiatives were passed in very dubious uh, circumstances in the legislature. Challenges to those initiatives have the potential to go up to the Supreme Court. And if you don't upend all of those uh, laws and his anti-worker laws, at least some of them could be tempered in some very significant ways, which for organized labor in Wisconsin would be transformative. And I would add one other thing presidential elections. Yes. In 2020, Wisconsin Supreme Court was the only one in the country to agree to hear Trump's challenge to the presidential election. He wanted to invalidate 200,000 uh, ballots from the state's two largest Democratic counties, and the court just narrowly uh, rejected that when one conservative uh, voted no, siding with three liberals, but it was on procedural grounds. Undoubtedly, 2024 is going to be another closely contested election. Now what will happen in Wisconsin? Same guys on the ballot, very possibly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, because we seem to uh, keep recycling, folks. Uh, let's say that that there was a Trump challenge, uh, that it was a close election in Wisconsin. Trump was a Republican nominee and again challenged the results. If you went to the court, you now have, will have a 4-3 majority on the state Supreme Court that is absolutely committed to small-D democracy. It is very unlikely that they would entertain a challenge to a legitimate election as the previous court did. Uh, and certainly if you came to a vote on the court, you would clearly have not just 4-3, the conservative that broke with the other conservatives is still on the court. So you now are looking at a, a much wider majority for respect for voting rights, respect for fair elections. And I'll throw one other thing in the mix here. Conservative who was running for the court this year, Dan Kelly, who actually served as a lawyer for the Republican Party and was involved in conversations about Trump's fake electors. And so if he had gotten on the court, uh, that would have been, you know, you would have had somebody there who had literally, you know, been a part of some of this scheming. And so uh, I think by any measure, what you got in the result on Tuesday night was a, a very, very clear signal of rejection of efforts to overturn elections and also really rejection of this sort of disregard for the rule of law that was very much a, a part of the previous court. Janet Protasewicz campaigned on her support for abortion rights for a woman's right to choose. 
I guess the top political lesson here is that abortion wins elections for Democrats. This is one in a series of elections that have shown that, but the Democrats have got to recognize that the transformative electoral power of the fight for abortion rights and abortion access. I think you have to to say that, John. And and uh, here's one of the real measures of it. Janet Prosevitz was in a very good position. She ran a good campaign. It was likely she was going to win. Uh, but her win was big. And one of the things that made it as big as it was, was a, a shift in voting in many suburban areas around Milwaukee that have tended to be very conservative. But as in last year's gubernatorial election, you saw uh, a shift in traditionally conservative areas uh, toward a pro-choice uh, liberal or progressive or Democrat, whichever type of race you're looking at. There's one other thing that's really significant. There was way boosted turnout on college campuses across the state. There were lines up at uh, University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire and places like that on election day. Well, that's a big deal because it's pretty clear. And I actually was on some of these campuses and talked to, to young folks who were there. They were very motivated, very mobilized by the reproductive rights issues that were at stake. For Democrats, for a long time, the great challenge has been to mobilize young people who are likely to vote Democratic if they get to the polls, but you got to get them to the polls. Well, in this race, there's a lot of evidence that the reproductive rights issues got them to the polls. And what helped get them to the polls was a huge effort by independent progressive groups doing face-to-face on-the-ground organizing on campuses and also in cities and suburbs and smaller uh, cities and towns. They reported doing 535,000 targeted door knocks, uh, followed up by other kinds of voter contact, phone calls, mail, text messages, and this huge effort on uh, campuses. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, one of the best Democratic parties in the whole United States, uh, raised millions of dollars. Uh, I think you probably saw some TV ads in Madison. We did see TV ads, John. Uh, in fact, you saw them all over the state. And and the amusing thing was there were so many of them that they piled up on top of one another. You would see a Protosewitz ad, then you'd see an ad from an independent group, then you'd see a Kelly ad, then you'd see an ad from another. And around the newscasts, they were they were just, you know, overwhelming. And they were overwhelmingly negative. I think that's an important thing to understand. I think that Protosewitz actually prevailed in the TV fight because she did it at the end of the day, kind of try to rise above it. And she actually had some positive ads about how she envisioned the courts and things like that. The Kelly campaign was just scorched earth from beginning to end. And that's not to say that the pro-savers folks didn't have some negatives on Kelly. One of the most fascinating things about all of the advertising was the way in which it intersected with the indictment of Donald Trump. At the close of the campaign, obviously, uh, outside Wisconsin, nationally, the big dominant story was the Trump indictment. And the Prosewitz campaign went up with advertising that highlighted Kelly, the conservatives' ties to the Republican Party, to Trump, to uh, efforts to overturn the election. And they had a very deep voice narrator at the end saying, you know, next Tuesday, vote as if democracy depends on it, because it does. <laughs> and um, in politics, where your your advertising can intersect with the news, with what's mm-hmm. actually happening, mm-hmm. um, I think that has a lot of power. And I will suggest to you that the Protosewitz campaign was pretty much a model of how to how to put together 
uh, a very effective campaign in a circumstance like this. I think it will be studied, not just in Wisconsin, but in other states around the country, but also in general for kind of a new political model that is very aggressive from the start, does a tremendous amount of messaging via TV, but then backs that messaging up at the doors. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that you mentioned that the Democratic Party in Wisconsin is, is you know, quite well regarded now. It wasn't a few years ago. Yeah. And you, you have to give credit to Ben Wickler, who is the chairman of the party. And here's one of the subtleties of it. The last like two or three days of the campaign, he wasn't in his office. He wasn't doing much TV. He was he was on social media. He would be on social media in small towns across Wisconsin, knocking on doors. Wow. And that that example of the chairman of the party out there in a parka on a snowy day, you know, saying, you know, we're here in this this little town and we're going to go knock on these doors. I think helped to energize a lot of other people to do that. So uh, again, when we talk about models, I, I think this one will be studied in that regard. John Nichols bringing us the good news from Wisconsin and from Chicago today. John, thanks as always for being on the show. It's an honor to be with you, John. We want to take a minute right here to talk about the KPFK Fund Drive, which has just begun. We don't like interrupting programming to ask for listener support, but we have to do it because listener support is what keeps us going. We don't run commercials. Maybe you noticed we don't sell airtime to sponsors. Listener support is the reason we can feature the kind of news and analysis you don't find at other media outlets. So if you like to listen to Living in the USA, if you like talking about politics and thinking about the left, then please support this show, this station, and this network by calling now. 818-985-5735 and pledging whatever you can. $25, $50, $100, 24 he was formerly editor of The Baffler and The New Republic. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Chris, welcome back. Uh, always a pleasure, John. Happy to be here, especially on what could be an auspicious occasion. So what will be the political consequences of Trump's charges in the coming trial? Seems to me there's three possibilities. Trump has been saying it's going to help him with his base and make it easier for him to win the Republican nomination. That, of course, would be good for us because polls show right now, at least, that Biden would do better running against Trump than against Ron DeSantis. And Trump, of course, already lost to Biden by 7 million votes. The second possibility is that it won't help Trump win the nomination, that Republicans now may say, the indictment is political and unfair, but a lot of them are going to conclude that they'd be better off in the general election with a different candidate who would support the same things Trump would do as president, but whose personal issues and problems won't dominate uh, 
everything. Of course, if the indictment doesn't help Trump win the nomination, that could be bad for us since DeSantis would be a stronger candidate. And the third possibility is that this whole thing doesn't matter. People decided what they thought about Trump a long time ago. Trump has always been more popular than DeSantis among Republican voters. He will continue to be. What do you think? Is this going to help or hurt Trump, or is it going to not make much difference? Well, I think it's my position is probably somewhere between option one and option three, as you <laughs> outlined it. Uh, I do think, you know, we've already seen Trump um, sort of rocket up the GOP polls in the wake of first the indictment and now the arraignment. So, yeah, it's not going to hurt him with the GOP base, which has long been used to his criminal corrupt behavior and celebrates it. And as to, I think it was the second option that Republicans will somehow wake up from this spell of demented enchantment that's been <laughs> gripping the party for six plus years. There's no evidence I see for that. And after all, let's not forget that, you know, the Republicans have had countless opportunities to kick Trump to the curb. Uh, January After January 6th, you know, if I cared at all about the fate of the Republican Party, I would have said that was the time. You've, you've got this toxic leader of the party. He has just jeopardized American democracy. He just lost the second major election under Trump's leadership. They also underperformed drastically in the 2022 midterms by convention, any conventional political calculus. It's time for a reset if you're a Republican. And yet, you know, the larger structural problem is the Republicans know that they have an unpopular governing agenda. No one really wants more tax cuts for the wealthy. No one really wants rampant climate denialism. No one really wants impunity for white collar crime even, uh, except Trump makes it all seem palatable to the GOP base. As you kind of outlined, it's weird to think that a Trump renomination could be the best of a set of really bad outcomes on the GOP side of things. The The thing to remember is that at long last, I think maybe for the first time in my political lifetime, the Republicans are acting like I'm used to seeing Democrats act. <laughs> they, are, they don't know what to do next. They're kind of feckless. They're in retreat from all sides. So maybe... I, I'm very trepidatious even saying this out loud, but maybe things could get better. <laughs> well, we we learned on Tuesday at, at midday that the charges cover not only Stormy Daniels, but also the payoffs to Karen McDougal, which is pretty interesting. This was the catch and kill system where women who reported having had sex with Trump, Karen McDougal was a former Playboy model. The way this would work is the National Enquirer would buy the rights and did buy the rights to her story, paid Karen McDougal $150,000 in exchange for a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, that they would have the exclusive right to publish this, and then they didn't publish it. They kept it a secret because they support Trump and nobody else could either. Here's the fascinating part. Trump was supposed to reimburse the Enquirer, but he never did. He <sighs> stiffed them like he did yeah. so many of his other creditors. Yeah. And we know this from Michael Cohen's testimony. He 
proposed then that when Stormy Daniels came along, that the Enquirer should make the same deal with Stormy Daniels they'd made with Karen McDougal, catch and kill her story. But the owner of the Enquirer, David Pecker, refused, as Michael Cohen explained, quote, stiffing American media, that's the corporation that publishes the Enquirer, meant they weren't going to come to his financial assistance again, close quote. And that's why Michael Cohen had to use his own money and then get reimbursed himself by Trump through these bogus legal fees. And that's where the crime occurred. If Trump had actually reimbursed the Enquirer for paying off Karen McDougal, there would not nothing have ha happened in court today. Donald Trump at work. Yeah, he is a victim of his own venality, which is a perfect accent point. And it's always important to remember that Donald Trump's political conciliary when he came of age was Roy Cohn, who had exactly the same pattern. There were all kinds of people demanding payment for Roy Cohn, and he just never, never paid. Roy Cohn skirted all kinds of legal actions. Uh, and I'm sure Trump had that model in his mind when he embarked on what is a plainly lunatic <laughs> scheme to create another revenue stream for Stormy Daniels. He just figured out, ah, you know, what are they going to do? Prosecute me? <laughs> so, <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. It's I saw a fascinating uh, poll, the Quinnipiac poll, found that 62% of Americans believe that the, the charges against Trump from Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, quote, mainly motivated by politics. And that included 70% of independents and 29% of Democrats. But the very same poll found that 57% of the same people thought criminal charges should disqualify Trump from running for president again. What do you make of that? Someone tweeted in um, who is covering the scene outside the courtroom, America's transformation into a comments section is complete. <laughs> if you're looking for rational through lines, look elsewhere. <laughs> you pointed out at uh, thenation.com that while, of course, Trump's real crime was the conspiracy to reverse the 2020 presidential election and mobilizing his forces for a violent coup d'etat, but you pointed out that an offense very much like Trump's payoffs to his sex partners was enough for former Senator John Edwards to face six charges in federal court back in 2008. Trump uh, has been citing the acquittal of John Edwards as part of his own defense. Remind us what the story is here. Well, it was structurally very similar. Um, Edwards arranged Riel Hunter, his pregnant mistress at the time, got somewhere between $900,000 and a million dollars from Edwards's uh, political action committees for his presidential campaign. Ultimately, he was acquitted, but this is where, again, Trump's attention to detail, I think, is wanting. Um, <laughs> okay. Edwards, either deliberately or, you know, haphazardly, was not really in the loop. These were a couple of major donors who decided they just wanted to take care of the problem on his behalf and make it go away. So he did actually have, evidently, deniability in, under these federal charges as someone who just simply didn't know about the financial arrangement. It's pretty clear that Trump knew about these financial arrangements. He directly reimbursed Michael Cohen under the, this phony color of a legal expense. Uh, 
a sum greater. <laughs> he paid Cohen, I think, $420,000 for the $130,000 payoff, which is not something that looks good either from the standpoint of being out of the loop. And why would you pay someone you know, more than three times what they had <laughs> originally arranged to be paid to this person? Because it's a criminal act. And, and the <laughs> indictment of Michael Cohen says that right. he did this act at the behest was, of individual one. Right. Who is so, Donald Trump. Who's Donald Trump. So there's already sworn testimony to that uh, effect. You wrote in The Nation, quote, the shabbiness of the indictment reminds us that Trump is a venal, blame-shifting tub of pathetically thwarted appetites in an ill-fitting power suit, close quote. That is so great, and it is so true. I am I am just glad that my editor let me have that. <laughs> but yes. To me, the most disturbing thing about Trump's response here is, is his statement that the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg was, quote, handpicked and funded by George Soros. What Trump is telling his supporters here is a Jewish billionaire paid a black DA exactly. to go after him. And and that description of the DA as Soros-backed was then repeated by Ron DeSantis and yeah. by some Republican leaders of the House and the Senate. It used to be that anti-Semitism was an underground thing uh, on the far right, but now both contenders for the presidential nomination are openly declaring their support for an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. This is something new in the Republican Party. Well, new-ish. You remember, remember in 2016, uh, Trump retweeted um, gross caricatures of Soros as a classical Jewish figure, you know, with rubbing his hands together, looking, you know, sinister in this very explicit way that goes back centuries in anti-Semitic iconography. So. He, in some senses, was picking up where he left off in 2016. But yeah, it is an absolutely disturbing, and it's it's worth noting here that Soros did not directly fund uh, Alvin Bragg's DA uh, candidacy, as he has expressly said. He did back political action committees to support um, progressive district attorneys, and he wrote a an op-ed in the Rupert Mur Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal explaining why he was doing it. It's not some, you know, big conspiracy. It's not the deep state, you know, singling out Donald Trump for punishment. It's fairly standard um, donor activity. The only thing exceptional is that it was for a somewhat good cause in this case. So. <laughs> I've always been interested in the Republican-Jewish coalition. Right. Partly because it's headed by Norm Coleman, the former senator from my home state oh, of Minnesota. I you're a native Minnesotan. I'm a native Iowan. So well, and, and so I know a lot about Norm Coleman. Yeah. Also because in the 60s, he was an activist at Yale in SDS. So he sort of went all the way yeah. from the anti-war radicalism to, to Republican <laughs> senator to head of the Republican Jewish coalition. I looked up what they... What they said about this Soros business, because they do say on their website that anti-Semitism is one of their main issues, along with Israel and you know the other obvious uh, things. Uh, Matt Brooks, executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, said last year 
that it was, quote, not anti-Semitic to highlight Soros and his work and the candidates he supports financially, his engagement makes him fair game for criticism to suggest, as some do, that attacks on Soros or anti-Semitic code words are simply wrong, close quote, the Republican Jewish coalition. So they're saying because he's a Democratic funder, it's okay to criticize his funding. What do you say to that? Well, <laughs> how much time do you have? I, I think, uh, you know, it's uh, it's very clear to anyone with eyes and ears what this messaging is. And it is an effort to send to a white nationalist base already activated behind Trump the message that the deep state and the Jews who evidently fund everything are um, out to get you. Um, and this has... This messaging has resulted in horrific violence over and over again. It's, in my view, disgraceful that Norm Coleman's group doesn't respond as any decent person with eyes and ears would. I have to say at the same time, I'm not terribly shocked or surprised because the right-wing politics, as you said, is now all the way in the gutter and they're, they're going to keep hammering away at this. And the elites on the right are complicit as they have been throughout the Trump era. It's disgusting. Of course, evangelical Christians long ago made their peace uh, with with Trump and are the key component of his base. Uh, as I understand it, their argument is that didn't Jesus say that he among you who has not had sex with Stormy Daniels cast the first <laughs> stone? <laughs> they, you joke, you joke. But Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted today that Jesus Christ was also unjustly arrested. Um, so <laughs> they are actually going there as well. And I explained to you during my QAnon appearance, <laughs> yes. this is going to happen. And you were skeptical. I don't want to just use it as <laughs> an I told you so moment. But Trump is continuing to embrace all of that um, martyrdom iconography. He uh, said at the unhinged Waco rally that I think is going to be a preview of the speech he's going to give tonight at Mar-a-Lago. Um, that he had been singled out for punishment. And he has also said at rallies that I am your retribution. So it is pretty clear what all, all of this language and imagery is, is tending toward. And it's really ugly. You spoke with a former Justice Department prosecutor for the nation uh, who once worked as an intern for Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, Ankush Cartery. He told you that, quote, as far as justice is concerned, if what you want for the country is to see Donald Trump in prison, your first order of business should be, should be what? To ensure that he is not reelected president, or additionally, that no Republican like Ron DeSantis would be elected president because Trump would pardon himself. DeSantis obviously would, would pardon Trump. Um, this is a feature of our two-tier justice system that I don't think people are sufficiently aware of, that, you know, maximum executive power operates under conditions of pretty much legal impunity. That's what Trump has been counting on. And I think a lot of the rationale for this, his present run at the presidency is that he knows, not just in New York, but in Georgia, or the, the two um, Jack Smith prosecutions now underway at the Justice Department. He is facing a lot of legal blowback at much too late. <laughs> it's it's going to be a different dynamic than he's used to 
manipulating the civil justice system um, with high-powered, aggressive attorneys hounding journalists and critics um, in in frivolous court actions. The criminal justice system is different, though, and I, I think I don't. I'm not sure that Trump fully understands this himself. That you know he he could be. I'm not saying it will happen, but when the trial is underway and if he adheres to form. He could be jailed for contempt of court very easily. You know, it's a different system. So we'll we'll see what unfolds as these multiple cases are gaining traction. If you want to see Donald Trump in prison, your first order of business should be making sure he doesn't get elected and making sure Ron DeSantis doesn't get elected. Chris Lehman, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Chris. I suppose we'll be talking about this again soon. Uh, it's, yeah, it is but the beginning. Uh, but thank <laughs> you, John. Always a pleasure. One last thing. It's the KPFK Fund Drive, and we're asking all our listeners to help keep this show, this station, and this network alive and strong in the coming season. Please call us now, 818-985-5735, and pledge whatever you can, 818-985-KPFK. Now we have a few words from John Nichols about the role of independent media in the current political landscape. John, of course, is one of our favorite reporters and commentators on the news. Of course, he's a national affairs correspondent for The Nation and the author most recently of the book Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. He's a regular on this show and many other shows on our sister stations at Pacifica. So it's a special pleasure to say, John Nichols, welcome back. And I know you've always been a huge supporter of alternative media, listener-supported radio, especially at Pacifica. So let's talk about that for a minute. Why you think KPFK and stations like it are a good thing that deserves support from listeners? Yeah, I don't think they're a good thing that deserves support, John. I think they're a great thing that deserves massive levels of, <laughs> of encouragement. And the reason for that is not merely because I like a lot of the people who are involved and I, and I like the, the, the model in many, many ways. It goes deeper. Uh, 20 years ago, Bob McChesney and I started writing about the decline of media in the United States. And what we recognized is even then, we didn't have enough sources of speak truth to power, uh, progressive, smart journalism right? And discussion and dialogue. They're just, many parts of the country just don't have it. Well, what's happened over the last 20 years is that we've lost a lot of what we have. Our newspapers are dying. Uh, in, in broadcast, we've seen so much uh, homogenation. And uh, there's a lot on the internet, but it's hard to get to. And so having a strong, you know, community-based, independent radio station that speaks truth to power at the local, state, national, and international level that brings on guests who will offer alternative perspectives and, frankly, that tries to get to some approximation of the truth. As hard as that may be in these times, that's more valuable than it has ever been. Uh, I will just say that they've got to give everything they can. I know people make campaign contributions. I know people, you know, give money to a lot of different sources. And I respect that. I want you to continue to do that for what you believe in. But I will tell you, if you don't support this station, and if you don't support it now, you undermine all the other things you believe in. Because having an island of truth and sort of an aggressive search for, you know, what we, what we need to know, what we can know, uh, is so valuable today that without it, all the other 
projects that we're involved in, fighting for democracy, for economic and social and racial justice, to save the planet, to promote peace. All those other things are undermined if we lose this radio station. So give at, at the highest level you can. That's what I, I plead for. But at the bottom line, the most important thing is to support this station and independent media because we need it now more than ever. And you can do that by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK right now. John Nichols, his terrific new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. John, thanks for talking with us today. John, thanks for everything you do. Great, great host, great station. So, at a time when things are not looking good, when the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade, when Trump-supported candidates are threatening in the midterm elections, when Trump himself is threatening a comeback in two years, when Republican vote suppression and gerrymandering are, make it, are making it harder for millions of people to vote, when peace in the world has never seemed more precarious, now especially we need independent voices like KPFK, sources of news and analysis that you won't find on PBS or CNN or MSNBC. We need KPFK to remain strong and independent in the coming political season. And that's why we need you to call us right now. 818-985-5735. Pledge your support, please, as much as you can. 818 818- 985-KPFK. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.